Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Last December, Forum spoke to two nurses and two doctors on the front lines of COVID care in California. At the time, cases were surging statewide and no vaccines were available. They described heartbreaking patient deaths, overflowing ICUs, and the heavy emotional toll of their work. I have had to watch a coworker die in my unit. I have had to watch family members and friends suffer from this. I've seen entire families be hospitalized because they still just don't believe that this is real. Those same healthcare workers join us again nine months later to share what they're experiencing now. And their answers may surprise you. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With headlines declaring last week that California has achieved the lowest coronavirus case rate in the nation, We thought it would be a good time to check back in with four frontline nurses and doctors who joined the program last December. Back then, they were in the winter surge. Vaccines were not yet available. And they told us fear of bringing the virus home was high. Yes, my parents do live with me. Um, My dad does have diabetes as well as um, chronic liver disease. So they are very immunocompromised. So yes, I am constantly worried Um, that I'm going to bring something for them from work and I'm going to make them sick. So what are these frontline healthcare workers experiencing now? Has the flattening of California's virus curve or the availability of vaccines brought any relief? I want to extend a warm welcome back to our panel from nine months ago. Dr. Parmal Barucha, a pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in the Sacramento area. Dr. Barucha, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us, registered nurse Mawata Kamara at Alameda Health Systems San Leandro Hospital. Mawata Kamara, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. Also, Dr. Alex McDonald, a family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County. Dr. McDonald, welcome back to you. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. And also Amy Arland, a registered nurse for Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. Amy Arland, really appreciate you coming back with us, too. Good morning, everyone out there. So, Amy, I, I wanted to start with you and ask you how things are in Fresno. You were a nurse in the ICU. Last time you were on with us, you've been facing a dire situation, having to find room for patients and hallways and So it's nine months later, we have a vaccine, but we've also had the Delta variant. What's the situation now in the ICUs? I think the last time that I spoke, my ICU was at 100% capacity. I have a 12 bed ICU. Here we are nine months later, my ICU is at 200% capacity. 
And that means that we have ICU patients in parts of the hospital that are not prepared with the right equipment that we need to, to provide ICU level care. And it sometimes means that we don't have ICU level staff trained available to take care of these people that are in different parts of the hospital either. We have reached the point where we've tried to divert patients to other hospitals, but unfortunately there are no ICU beds available in the Central Valley for about a four hour drive radius from here. Wow, Dr. Barucha, it sounds like you are having also capacity constraints at your hospital as well. Can you tell us what things are looking like in your ICU? So just as Amy said, um, you know, first of all, I would like to say that this surge that we are seeing this is, this is similar to fighting a domestic terrorism. This could have been easily prevented if we had more patients and more people vaccinated. So just as Amy said, we have had um, patients who needed ICU level of care that had to be transferred. Um, I am blessed and lucky because I work for Dignity Health in the Sacramento area, and we have about four big hospitals and two small hospitals, so, so we can transfer patients from one hospital to the next, but that also always does not happen, and so we have had patients in the ER uh, hold for a few days or have patients who are in cardiac arrest on the regular floors. Mm. So it's and a bad situation. It's a dire situation. And Dr. Alex McDonald, it sounds like also in your case, while while you may not be at the same capacity constraint, say, as what Amy Arland is experiencing, that it sounds like people who are seeking care for non-COVID-related issues are having a difficult time getting it. Absolutely. So I, I practice family medicine. So I, I work in the hospital as well as in the outpatient clinic too. And uh, there's a, this massive backlog for the past 18 months of people who have not come in for their routine screening, their mammograms, their pap smears, their physicals, and they suddenly all want to come in. And we're still dealing with a lot of COVID patients and, and sick patients, but especially in the outpatient world, uh, we're just being sort of overwhelmed with the, the demand for care at this point. And we obviously want to care for these patients. We want everyone to do the best they can. Um, and then also just the, the conversations we're having every single day about COVID vaccinations, vaccinations and also now going into flu season, really trying to talk about the importance of getting vaccinated to prevent mm. a flu surge on top of our already COVID surge also. Malacha Kamara, have you noticed differences in the patient population coming in? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I believe that for the first surge, um, people have a fear of COVID. I think um, we were watching it all over the news in other countries and then it came here and people were so afraid because they felt like they didn't know enough or um, at least um, they felt like it was deadlier back then. But now it seems like um, everybody is out. Everybody, you know, is over the pandemic um, and, you know, they're coming into the ER, like, um, you know, the doctor, Dr. McDonald was just saying, um, everybody that had every little issue is coming to the ER and we're still getting the COVID patients. Um, and in this rate, it's, 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 it's frustrating in a way because you see a lot of patients who are outside, but they, they don't want to get vaccinated and they're coming in with the COVID symptoms and um, it's the same message over and over again, you know, um, the vaccine is safe. It, if you ask questions about why they aren't getting the vaccine, um, they will tell you something. I had a patient tell me um, a few weeks ago that they said so many people have died from the vaccine. So then mm -hmm. I had to ask her, you know, where where did you see that, or where did you where was the coverage for that? And they just told me, you know, to go look on the internet um, because it's everywhere. 
Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. Um, our ER is crowded <laughs> it's, it's every day um, and we don't have enough staff. So we're chronically um, in, the, in the middle of a staffing crisis. I mean, Amy Arland, hearing what you described all the way through to Dr. Barucha, Dr. McDonald, and Moata Kamara in San Leandro, I think it might be surprising because we have been hearing how we're kind of potentially over the peak right now. Case rates are slowing, but it sounds like the bulk of the patients that all of you are seeing are the unvaccinated patients, which is what has been sort of the national picture as well. What I'm also struck by hearing what Moata said, Amy Arland, is that She's contending with misinformation about the vaccine. And I, I'm wondering if you are too, and if that's affected your interactions with patients. It very much has. Um, I, of course, I live in a conservative part of the central San Joaquin Valley. Um, and as the crisis nurse I described to you last year, what I was having to face um, dealing with these patients who were needing to compete for an ICU bed, and I was having to make decisions about which one of them was the sickest and needed that bed. Those things have continued for the last nine months since we talked, and it has gotten to the point where it has become more and more difficult to get through to people when they are lacking on oxygen to their brain for very prolonged periods of time. Um, a lot more mistrust and certainly um, voluminous amounts of misinformation. And these people, when they are in crisis, are not going to be able to absorb information that you're trying to share with them, that you're trying to help them and save their lives, they're in crisis. Um, and that really, for me, became difficult to do. Um, I am professionally trained to put my beliefs aside and my patients' beliefs aside and try to find ways to get them to participate in the care that I'm trying to provide for them. And that became nearly impossible during this last surge. And so I've had to take a break from that. Amy, you shared with our producer, Susie Britton, that some patients have been belligerent. What has that been like for you? We have always had to deal with workplace violence. Unfortunately, in my line of work as healthcare providers, it happens. Um, these patients that are dealing with the COVID virus are often, um, lack, like I said, lacking oxygen to their brains for very long periods of time, and that affects their ability to process things. Um, and, and you go into this basic fight or flight survival mode at that point. So when, you know, when you're afraid, some people act out. Um, they don't understand why five people are in their rooms trying to force them to do something they don't want to do. So they want to fight and protect themselves. It's only human nature. Uh, but dealing with that on a daily, more frequent basis is um, sometimes very hard to put your own feelings and your emotions aside from that because you're being personally attacked. And it may not be personal, but you know your own survival instincts kick in at that point. Hmm. Um, and so we, I, sometimes you just have to take a break from that. And luckily I was given the opportunity um, to step back from that responsibility for a little while. And that's what I've had to do for my own mental health. I'm glad you've been able to step back some. Moata Kamara, what about family members? Family members must get upset too, as they see their loved one upset. Yes. Um, constantly, we're constantly dealing with that because like I mentioned before, most people feel like this pandemic is either over 
or now it's safe to come outside. Well, when they come to the hospital and we told them that's not the case, um, you know, Amy uh, mentioned uh, workplace violence. Um, it, it's getting worse. Um, we had to go on lockdown um, about two weeks ago when we had a family member coming to the ER. Um, one, they had a family member in the ER being treated with COVID symptoms. And we had to explain to them um, they couldn't come in to see the patient because um, we are not allowing visitors into the ER. Um, the, the family member became um, agitated. Um, not only, and it was, it was particularly scary because they were going and coming back and escalating each time. Um, the first time they wanted to see the, the patient, they argued with security, they left and then they came back. And about the third time when they came back, um, he told us that he was going to come back with a gun um, to, um, to deal with us. So um, at this point, you know, it became a huge fear factor because, um, you know, we've seen, you know, gun violence all over the use and in different um, capacities. So we put the hospital on lockdown. We were on lockdown for 24 hours. Um, we had, um, we sent out an email, an email went out to everyone in the hospital to let them know that they're looking for the individual with their picture. Um, and if they were to see him to call 911 immediately, we had a police officer come down to the facility. Um, it was really scary. Um, it's one of those things that you never believe that it's going to happen at your facility, but then it does. Um, and you know, it's either, um, if we're not dealing with that, we're dealing with family members who are calling and upset and cursing that they can't come in. Our family, we have um, young children who um, have family member had to have a huge fight outside of the ER and we had to call the police for that too. So um, it's not only the COVID patients, it's their families as well. And we're seeing an influx of that. We're talking to California healthcare workers about the ongoing challenges they face as they care for COVID patients now. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your reactions to what you're hearing. As always, you can call 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been a rude awakening for me working in healthcare, turning on the TV and seeing all of these talks about us being heroes and, you know, how much people appreciate what we do, but then going to work and feeling the exact opposite. That's my guest, registered nurse Mawata Kamara of Alameda Health System San Leandro Hospital. That was Mawata telling us back in December how hard it was to be a healthcare worker. What we're hearing nine months later from her and my guests, Amy Arland of Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center, registered nurse there, Alex McDonald of Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County, a doctor there, and Dr. Parmal Barucha, a pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in the Sacramento area is that even after vaccines, more treatment options, and California's declining health, declining case rates, the intensity has not let up. And I want to invite your listeners to join the conversation with your thoughts or questions about what you've been hearing from these frontline health workers. And if you're a healthcare professional, please feel free to call in and let us know if these guests' experiences resonate with you have you had to be hospitalized recently? What was that experience like? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. 
Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Dr. Brucha, it must be jarring to hear those kinds of reactions from patients, especially as we heard from Mawata's cut in December. At the time, the conversation was much more about respecting and honoring our frontline health workers and everything that they're going through. So um, as, as Amy and Mawata has said um, about how, how bad the situation is, including threats and physical violence. So yes, in December last year, we were heroes, except that we did not wear capes. And a lot of people would thank us um, actually, after listening to our interview, I got uh, a card from a couple out somewhere in California thanking me as well as the whole team and blessing us. Mm-hmm. Now, that whole dynamic has shifted. I guess we are no longer heroes. We are actually villains. Um, we are the targets um, who make patients and their loved ones mad or much more sicker than they are. It starts with coming to the ER. Number one, they don't want to believe that they have COVID infection. If they get over that bump, then they're not ready to believe that they are as sick as we are telling them. If you get over that bump with much deliberation, then comes um, argument regarding the treatment options. Um, Patients, as well as the family members are, are bent this time in this search, particularly to use all the treatment options that FDA has not approved, they really don't care about what we have to offer. We have had threats that they are going to take us to the court of law and they're going to get the lawyers in the hospital and they're going to get media outside the hospital because because we are not giving them them treatment that is not FDA approved, except that they have read it online that how great those medications are. So So you mean things like ivermectin and so forth, you are having um, to contend with misinformation around that? I would say yes. Um, You know, so so that has become a big issue. And so they are, I, it just, it's very mind boggling to me that, that patients and public out in the community are not ready to believe science, including the vaccine that works, but they want to take everything that that does not work or that have shown not to be effective, including medications or, or that may be high doses of vitamins. So that's where the conflict starts and, and they come in with mistrust and, and it just goes downhill from there. It is sometimes even difficult to talk to them. We have had some, some patients, family members ship in some medications into like a, a card which is very hard to believe, but a yeah, card? yes, like a birthday card, they would, they would, you know, put the card in there along with some medications, um, which, which we were not giving them. Um, luckily we found it, but it has gone to that extent and, and it has become a very risky place to work for the lack of real words. Um, we do treat all the patients with the same empathy. We have signed up to be doctors, signed up to be nurses, Patients are our first preference. Their health and well-being is our first preference. Whether whether they be people of color, whether they be white people, rich, poor, doesn't matter to us. We are here to serve them, except that we do ask for a little bit of dignity, a little bit of trust, you know, and and respect. Um, Dr. McDonald, 
Have you had similar issues with misinformation, trying to address misinformation around treatments? And has the fact that there are at least more treatment options helped at all? Are they effective? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm hearing everything my colleagues are saying, and I definitely can appreciate that in the hospital setting. But I think it's important to know that's also happening in the outpatient as well. Um, you know, as you know, as a family physician, you know, I provide coordinated, comprehensive care for all people of ages, newborns to seniors. You know, preventative care. I talk about you know mental health issues and and acute issues and chronic issues. So really, we build longitudinal relationships with our patients and really have a holistic view of their health. And some of my patients who I've seen multiple times over multiple years, and I've really established a relationship with them, they come in, they ask me for my my medical expertise on their back pain and their high blood pressure and, you know, any other medical issues. But when it comes to uh, COVID or the COVID vaccine, there's like this alternate reality in some of these patients' minds, and they completely disregard, and they don't want to hear anything I have to say after my, you know, 20 plus years of, of medical education and training. And, you know, it's really insulting. You know, just, just going to throw it out there and be honest about it. It's really insulting that they want to sort of pick and choose what pieces of information they want. Um, when I know a patient lo- over time, again, we've built, developed that relationship, which is helpful. Um, and then obviously, I, I, every single patient who walks in my office, I ask them if they have had their COVID vaccine, and I recommend it if they have not. And we often have a conversation about that. Um, some patients are at least open to hearing my perspective, but there's some patients who don't. You know, I had one one call with a, a telephone visit with a patient a few weeks ago demanding that I prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, both of which have been proven not to be effective at all uh, to treat, treat COVID and potentially have harmful side effects, demanding that I prescribe those two things for them. And then when I said, well, really, why don't we just move the ball upfield and prevent COVID in the first place by getting you vaccinated? And this patient was completely adamant against it and just completely shut down and didn't want to hear anything I had to say. So it's it's a struggle. Um, I think it's 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 emotionally draining after the past 18 months. It's one more kind of uh, um, insult to uh, our, our work and our ethic and the value that we're trying to do to really provide care and keep people safe. You know, over 90% of people hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated. I have a, I have a friend who jokes that they started calling the ICU the unvaccinated care unit because almost every single patient in the ICU with COVID is not vaccinated. We have this amazing tool and people just don't want it. It's, it's, I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. Well, we've got calls coming in. Again, you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Peter in Redwood City, join us. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was a, an emergency room doctor from 1980. Till, till about 2000, I also trained for decades of my life. And I think uh, my heart so much goes out to the young doctors and nurses today who are dealing with this stuff. I read about it. I've witnessed some of it myself. I've been to the Central Valley and experienced incredible amounts of hate and venom from total strangers, you know, just putting gas in my car. And um, I do not know where this has come from, but I think... One thing that I can share, having worked in inner cities and also in rural areas in the East Coast and the Midwest and in California 20 years ago, um, these rural areas especially, they just weren't acting like this back then. But now everything I read says that there's this 
subset of people um, living there who act in these abhorrent ways. Um, and I've witnessed it myself. I don't understand it. I don't recognize it. It's as if there's a subset of people um, in part of our country that are that have somehow been stampeded into this um, gigantic uh, movement of hate and anger and rage. And I, I, my heart so goes out to the young doctors and nurses who are risking their lives, remember. They're risking their lives trying to provide care and getting back hatred and rage. I, I'll take my answer off the air. Well, Peter, I, I thank you for sharing that. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Paramal Barucha, if when we talked in December, one of the things that was so heartbreaking was that it was hard to treat patients, meaning that there weren't a lot of options available. Now we have more treatment options. We hear about monoclonal antibodies. We hear about remdesivir and so on. And I'm wondering if that at least in the care piece of this, has offered any kind of relief? Or are, are we misunderstanding the effectiveness of what's available? So, yes, we do have more medications available. And I don't think that this is the correct forum to go over in the details of those, but, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> For example, if you talk about remdesivir, studies show that, number one, it is not a magical bullet. Um, it works in the first five to 10 days by reducing the amount of symptoms and by, by reducing the amount of time that you will, you will share the virus with other people. It has never shown that it will improve the rate of mortality. Steroids, they work by reducing the inflammation. Again, it works uh, depending upon what phase of COVID you come in for. Monoclonal antibodies are a whole different set of anti, uh, uh, treatment options, which we give to patients who come to urgent care or emergency room in the very beginning phases of COVID and who are at risk of progressing um, to the level that they can end up in the ICU. So the monoclonal antibodies are actually out of hospital treatment option for urgent care or ER. Um, to prevent deterioration in a subset of population who are at more prone or more risk of, of developing a severe infection. So yes, we do have treatment options, but those are all, uh, none of the treatment options have shown to improve the mortality, or in other words, none of them, they cut down your risk of dying. Mm. What what helps would be the vaccination, and I can go over some some number briefly. So if we if we think that there are the total population in the United States is 330 million, out of which about 42 million have had infection with COVID uh, COVID 19. So if you if you take that number, then your risk of developing COVID 19 is one in eight. And out of those 42 million, we have had about 670,000 patients who have passed away, which means if you have had COVID, your chances of dying are one in 63. But if you look at the data from the vaccination, then we have vaccinated about 180 million people. This is as of last week. 
And the breakthrough cases are barely 15,700, which means that if you had a vaccine, if you get infected, you, you, you can get still infected with COVID, but your risk is one in 11,000 versus one in eight. And mm. your, your risk of death is about one in 71,000 if you are fully vaccinated. So, yes. so, so it's the vaccine that helps. Oh. Well, this listener, Leslie, writes, the people who get mad that they can't come in and see their loved ones while in the ICU with COVID, They're, where have they been the last year and a half? Please don't let them get you down. As hard as it sounds like it can be, there are many grateful people out there supporting you from afar. Muwasa Kamara, I, I'm reminded that uh, after hearing what Leslie and Peter were saying, and then also reminded of something that you told our producer that that younger patients are coming in to the hospital, what, and that they are apologizing, what are they apologizing for to you? A lot of them, you know, are apologizing for not getting the vaccine. Um, and I, I took care of a patient one, um, he was in his thirties. Um, he was there. He was the only one that his entire family got COVID. And he was the only one who ended up in the, um, um, hospitalized and he was apologizing because he felt like you know it's he was he, he was supposed to be there to support his um protect his family and now he's in the hospital and he feels helpless he doesn't know if he's going to make it um and we keep getting the same thing i should have taken the vaccine um i didn't have the time and, you know, to me, I, I sit there and I say, you know, we've had this vaccine for a while now, you know, if you wanted to, you really could have, you know, went and get the vaccine, but this is not really, you know, the situation where you get to judge your, your patients, just kind of be there to support them emotionally, yes. but they'll apologize to us because they realize that we're risking our lives to take care of them. They'll apologize. They wish they, you know, they go to this phase where they say, I wish I would have done this for my family. I wish I would have done this for my friends. And we just, at that point, you know, it, they already have COVID, they're already in the hospital, we just do our best to support them. Um, but we tell these stories over and over again, because at the end of the day, we want people who are out there who haven't been vaccinated to take this opportunity, do it now, don't wait till you're with us in the hospital and, um, and then, you know, apologize or feel sorry. Um, if you care for your family, do it now. Amy Arland, are you also seeing younger patients and are, are you also seeing what Dr. Brucha was saying, that still mortality is really high? Yes, absolutely. I have had to watch patients that are the same age as me in their mid-40s leave their children orphaned because neither of the parents were vaccinated and they thought that it was perfectly fine to send their children back to school. And so they caught it from their kids. Um, Yes, 90% of the patients that I see are unvaccinated. Uh, however, we have seen more breakthrough infections coming through. Now, keep in mind, it's the vaccine is not the magic bullet. It is one plug in a boat full of holes. So it is multifaceted that even if you're vaccinated, that doesn't mean you're not going to get COVID. Your behaviors and what you do outside of your home 
also will impact that because we see stadiums that are now full for sporting events and music events. We see everyone trying to pretend like this pandemic is not still here in front of us and they're going out and gathering en masse. I have neighbors setting off what I call COVID bombs in their backyards, having huge parties with, you know, blow up bounce houses. And I, I still see, like I said, last year, my ICU was at 100%. And I didn't think that I could bear much more of the brunt of this. Now I'm at 200%. And I have nurses that are bailing left and right, because they cannot continue to work in these conditions anymore. Um, and of course, the hospital industry is taking full advantage of this crisis to just decimate their frontline workers. Well, Sue writes, please know that most of us really appreciate all your work under such difficult circumstances. Are you offering vaccines to family members and non-COVID patients? I assume some people would get vaccinated if they had to actually opt out. Amy Arland? We uh, offer the vaccine to absolutely everyone that comes through the doors. Um, a lot of times, if we have non-vaccinated patients that actually do survive, we strongly encourage them before they get discharged from the hospital to still get vaccinated anyway. We're talking with healthcare workers who joined us in December to talk about the challenges of caring for COVID patients. Nine months later, we're hearing how their experiences compare. You, our listeners, are with us. You can tell us your reactions or thoughts to what you're hearing, whether or not you are a healthcare professional and whether the guest experiences resonate with you or if you or a family member have been hospitalized recently, what kind of experience has that been? 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I think the biggest thing for us, too, is when you think about any kind of a natural disaster, there's often a, a beginning, a middle, and a recovery, right? And, and this, this pandemic has lasted so long, and we don't know where we are. Is this going to last another few months, another year? Um, and that sort of unknown is really weighing very, very heavily on the mental health of our, of our healthcare workers as well. That's my guest, Dr. Alex McDonald, back in December. Dr. McDonald is back with us now, a family medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County, talking about how his experience compares from then. Also with us is Amy Arland, a registered nurse at Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. Dr. Parmal Barucha is with us, a pulmonary critical care specialist at Dignity Health in the Sacramento area. And Mawata Kamara is with us, a registered nurse at Alameda Health Systems San Leandro. Dr. Alex McDonald, I'm curious to get your reaction to hearing yourself from back in December, mainly because at that time, I don't think you knew that what you had gone through, you'd go through for the same length of time continually, another nine months. It's been 18 months now. How are you dealing with the length of time that you've had to deal with this situation and the way that it has changed now? 
Yeah, it, it's, it's certainly interesting hearing myself. Um, I, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that for quite some time, actually. So that's interesting to reflect back. Um, I think, again, we're, we're still in the unknown. I mean, hopefully we're towards the end of this. In December, there was this amazing light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I can remember the the day I got a text message from my uh, the, the administrator saying, hey, COVID vaccines are available for, for healthcare workers. And literally, I dropped everything I was doing December 17th at 9.30 in the morning. I will remember uh, for probably the rest of my life because I literally went straight to the to the um, the area and got my COVID vaccine. And it felt like this amazing sigh of relief of, of a breath of fresh air. And yes, we were still in the middle of this. We, but it felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it was the beginning of the end. Um, it, it, it to, and to think back now that we could literally be done with this pandemic if we had enough people vaccinated. Um, we have this amazing, effective, and extremely safe vaccine. Uh, this amazing collaboration between uh, private and, and and public sector, international collaboration like we've likely never seen before. And if we had enough people vaccinated, we'd be done with this. Every single patient who's admitted to the hospital right now, not every, okay. I, I, I won't try not to be too <laughs> speaking too much hyperbole, but almost every single patient could be could be prevented from being hospitalized or dying from COVID right now. Um, yes, you can still get COVID with the vaccine, but it's usually a very, very mild case. I use the seatbelt analogy. If you can wear a seatbelt, yes, you can still get into a car accident. Yes, you can still potentially die, but it's one extra layer of protection, which can significantly reduce the risk of severe injury or death. And every single patient I talk to, I say that to them. And to think that that we have this amazing tool that people just don't want to get because of misinformation and disinformation out in the world, particularly through social media and online, um, is really a, a one additional uh, burden that I think a lot of us have, have had to deal with right now in thinking about the mental health and the wellness of our physicians. I'm extremely proud to, to work for Kaiser Permanente, and we have this amazing organization, uh, a, a program really designed to support the well-being and the mental health of our, of our frontline healthcare workers. It's called Rise and Renew to talk about these issues and to create a space and to, to provide resources to help our physicians with this but it doesn't mean it's not there it doesn't mean that we still don't know how much longer we're going to deal with this i i hope we're towards the end um we could be done with it uh if enough people got vaccinated and, and i think i'll stop there but i could go on and on about how how this is just just so emotionally draining can i ask you dr barucha what it's been like for you dealing with this length of time at this very high level of stress so as we all have been, you know, saying, we are all tired, frankly speaking, and tired, yes, to some extent physically, but I think it is mainly mental exhaustion, seeing patients suffer day in and day out. I am, I am extremely exhausted of listening an eight-year-old and 10-year-old pleading to me on the phone to not let their dad die. Um, and, and it just breaks the heart and how long can one keep on doing this? In the, in the previous surge, um, the patients were elderly with a lot of comorbid conditions, but now the gear has shifted and, and we have, have lost 20 year old, 40 years old. Um, and now three kids left with a mom who can't work. And, and it is just insane. Um, and not only that, the staff takes it to the heart, the staff is so much involved with these patients taking care of them for 12 hours that literally they are breaking down. Um, we do have something called Schwartz rounds that we, that we started doing about two months ago before this new surge hit 
mainly to listen to the healthcare workers and provide support to each other. Uh, but we had to shut that down mainly because of the surge. Uh, we do have something called EAP, which is Employee Assistant Program now in, in the hospitals, whereby they can they can provide confidential counseling. But, you know, everything, everything takes a toll on your mind and on your heart. We are human beings at the end of the day. And, and it is just, just hard to believe that there are some subset of population who, who doesn't care about themselves as well as they don't care about the community and puts everybody at risk. Dr. Bircha, how's, how's your family? The last time we talked, you were very concerned about bringing this home to your parents. Your parents were basically staying at home, isolated, at home. not isolated, but they were not going out. So the, it is still the same amount of fear. Unfortunately, um, dad had to be admitted to the hospital three times for some other conditions. And now we have to go for treatment every day. Um, so he goes to the healthcare facility every day, and so do I. Um, so yes, I'm very stressed um, mm. that you know that I hope not to bring Delta home. I'm sorry to hear that. Let me go to caller Angeli in San Jose. Hi, Angeli. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. So I'm um, a physician in the hospital setting, and um, what I've noticed is. A lot of uh, people in the community see COVID as a fear. They're afraid of it, but it's also an abstract disease. So I feel that patients, when they're ill, when they're very sick in the hospital and they're dying or, or needing oxygen, the public doesn't see that. And they, and they don't, I don't think they understand the impact of COVID in a real life way. And I, I, part of it's because we can't let people in the hospital, but you know, media as well doesn't portray this. And I wonder if the community could see what COVID actually does in real life, if people might be more willing to get the vaccine. Well, Angeli, thanks for sharing that. Um, let me go next to Neil in Oakland, who I believe is also an ER physician. Hi, Neil. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I work at a busy uh, county hospital in the Bay Area, and um, I'm just I'm impressed with sort of the rationales that people come up with why they don't want to get vaccinated. And I sort of come to the conclusion that the majority of the reason why people don't get vaccinated is, is fear-based. And I think in the beginning of the, the pandemic, people sort of denied that the, there was a pandemic, that people were dying, um, and that was fear-based. Uh, but then, you know, as the pandemic went on, People started seeing family members die. And now I think I saw a statistic the other day, like one in 500 people have died in the United States of COVID. So it's becoming real. People are seeing family members and loved ones dying. Um, and so they're looking to other things to sort of assuage their fear. And maybe it's not denial that COVID doesn't exist, but, you know, there's a microchip in the vaccine. Um, there's, there's all these conspiracy theories and all these things. And people are glomming on to whatever irrational sort of thing they can do to not get the vaccine, because to get the vaccine, it means that they may have to acknowledge that they could get sick. Um, and, and, and so this is the way they deal with their fear. So I had a question for Dr. McDonald, um, because, you know, working in a busy emergency department, um, it's really difficult to unpack where that fear comes from, how to deal with that. It is such a strong coping mechanism. It comes from years of experience. Um, you know, uh, yeah. maybe if, and so I was just wondering for Dr. McDonald, who's known these patients now for years, you know, who's had continuity of care and his ongoing relationships, how do you deal with the fear in a very short visit? How do you get through that? How do you unpack it? How do you 
work through it? What, what sort of mechanisms has he found that's been helpful to get his patients who are unvaccinated vaccinated? Neil, thanks. Alex McDonald? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for that. I, um, uh, patience, I think, is the number one answer. So um, I always, I so oftentimes I know the answer looking at their chart if they've been vaccinated or not. Uh, and, and I'll sort of just ask them, I'll say, have you had the COVID vaccine? Um, and within within a second or two, based on their, their verbal and their nonverbal language, uh, I can kind of tell if this is going to be a, a, a patient who is sort of in the middle and I can have a conversation with them if they've, uh, you know, is it it's someone who's really ready to get vaccinated or someone who's very has a lot of questions and is very hesitant to get vaccinated or is very resistant, I guess. So the first thing is I, uh, I, I pick up on those verbal cues. I, I try to listen. I ask them why, why or why not? And I really listen to their answer. I don't listen to respond. I'm not like prepping my, my spiel. I'm really listening to what their answer is because every single patient out there who is vaccine hesitant or vaccine resistant has an individual reason. And I really feel like it's every single conversation is what's going to move the needle. It's individual conversations. You know, data from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that 80 plus percent of people trust their own physician, not a physician, their own physician to get reliable uh, COVID vaccine information. So I really listen to their answer. And then I, 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 I pause and I ask them, I don't just start telling them what I think. I ask them, hey, can I tell you my personal and professional perspective? You know, almost always they say yes. But that one little piece where you ask that question, it changes the dynamic of that relationship and that, and that conversation. It's not, it's no longer confrontational. It's much more collaborative. And it's not like, and I often say to them, look, I want you to get vaccinated to, to keep you safe, to keep your family safe, to keep your friends safe. But more importantly, I want you to get good, reliable, accurate information so you can make the best healthcare choice for yourself. And I and that's true of no matter what I do, whether I prescribe a medication or I do an injection or I recommend a vaccine, I tell the patient and I give them information so that then they can make the best choice for themselves. Um, it usually takes multiple conversations. Um, I can think of one one uh, young man in particular who I think I've spoken to probably four or five times about the vaccine. And I got an email from him last week saying, hey, doc, you know what? I got the vaccine. Um, these these are not going to be sort of a one-off conversation. Uh, the ER, the hospital is often not the place to have these conversations. It can, it can impact it. So Every single time a patient touches the healthcare system, whether it's a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, a medical assistant, we need to ask them if they're vaccinated. We need to t tell them we want them to get vaccinated and give them good information too. Um, so it takes patience and takes persistence. And, and as you mentioned, having a relationship, a, a pre-existing relationship and a longitudinal relationship that we specialize in family medicine is, is really, really beneficial as well. We're talking with Alex. McDonald, Family Medicine Specialist at Kaiser Permanente Fontana Medical Center in San Bernardino County. Also, Paramal Barucha, Pulmonary Critical Care Specialist at Dignity Health in the Sacramento area. Amy Arland, a registered nurse at Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center. And Mawata Kamara, a registered nurse at Alameda Health Systems San Leandro Hospital, about their experience last December and how it compares to their experiences now. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And we have more comments from listeners coming in. Norma writes, what makes me crazy about all this is that anti-vaxxers refuse medical science but are quick to turn to it when they get sick. We get to pay for this. The whole world is longing for vaccines. And we have people who say, you can make me. You can't make me. Something is really wrong here. 
Denise writes, this feels like in part a failure of education, a lack of good critical thinking, and the negative influence of social media. These disturbing stories by your guests are just heartbreaking. I wish that I had an answer. Mawata Kamara, I remember when we talked last time, you were pregnant. <laughs> Wondering how it's been for you dealing with all of this with a new baby. Oh, wow. Um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I was pregnant. I now have a five-month-old. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. We had a year last week, actually. Oh. No, it's the week before, actually. Um, she started wheezing. Um and and she started all wheezing. I, I, I was going to stay home and manage it from home. And then we ended up on day two in the emergency room. And, you know, the whole time I was just, um, I felt like I was holding my breath because I was thinking, is it COVID? Is it COVID? Is it COVID? Um, and then the second time I ended up in the emergency room, we were admitted to um, Children's Hospital. Um, it was... Um, I, I've been very careful this entire pandemic with my kids. So, you know, I have my desensitization station in my in my um, garage, and I I don't when I come home I don't even interact with them. I just run straight to the bathroom. So for me, I just have so many thoughts in my head. You know, um, is she going to be okay? And thank God we took a rapid COVID test, and it wasn't COVID. And my heart was <laughs> I started to breathe a little bit. <laughs> and then the second day, you know, she was okay enough for us to come home. So um, we are well. We're still. I, I think Amy mentioned before, it's not just the vaccine, it's the social distancing, it's the, um, you know, taking care of yourself, it's the wearing a mask. So I have been practicing all of that with my kids. I, I joke that my six-year-old could be like an educator for other kids because she will tell you everything about COVID. So we're here um, and we're managing and trying to like adhere to all of the safety guidelines to make sure that we stay okay. I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear your baby's okay. Rachel writes, I have been witnessing the pain and anguish that our medical care providers have been dealing with because of the lack of respect for the work that they're doing. My sister is an ER doctor, and the stories that she shares with me are just absolutely heartbreaking. The post-COVID crisis will be finding and training doctors, teachers, nurses, and mental health providers. Amy Arland, you've talked about how you've taken a break and when you realized you needed to finally, <laughs> but I'm wondering what keeps you in it? What keeps you going? Um, <laughs> a lot of days that's hard. Uh, I think for me, I did go through a very dark period after the third surge. It has been difficult for my family to deal with this prolonged and chronic stress. Um, but what keeps me going is that I have sought mental health help for myself with the encouragement of my union and also um, just trying to live a perfect purpose-driven life. Um, it's very doom and gloom in the ICU and I don't feel like what I do right now uh, has very much purpose. Um, when you're at 100% mortality, when again, you are watching every single patient that comes through your department leave only one way, it becomes deadening. Um, and so luckily mental health services are available and I have sought them, but many healthcare workers just don't. 
provide self-care and I am guilty of that myself. So I've had to take some time away from the things that cause me the most stress, but you know, things like having refrigerated trucks and um, a three month backup at the morgue have never let up. Um, those things are still happening. I have had five employees in my hospital die in the last year. Suicides are on the rise. I've had coworkers who have um, killed themselves because of the stress and the isolation. Um, nurses get diseases too, like diabetes. And if you're a nurse that has diabetes stuck in a very high stress situation for eight to 12 hours, you don't get time to have a lunch break for several days on end. That takes its toll on your physical well-being as well. Um, things, Yes, we have things like PTSD and severe depression and anxiety going on, but we also have physical illnesses that are brought on by stress, like um, a lot of nurses have ulcers. Um, we're dealing with high blood pressure. Um, you know, short-term stress is one thing, but long-term stress and moral injury and moral distress has taken more than just an emotional toll and a spiritual toll, but a physical toll on us as well. And that's why so many nurses have decided that they cannot continue working in this environment. They are quitting, they are retiring much earlier than they had planned on. And there really is no way for us to replace these nurses that have had 20, 30 years of experience. Well, Amy Arlen, I can't thank you enough for sharing your experiences today. Also, Alex McDonald of San Bernardino County, Parmal Barucha of Sacramento, Mawata Kamara of San Leandro. So thankful to all of you. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.